When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 82 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Sarah Huffman, Assistant Director of the Center for Communication Excellence, Elena Kotos, Director of the Center for Communication Excellence and Associate Professor of Applied Linguistics in the English Department, and Kimberly Becker, lecturer in English, all three guests at Iowa State University. Their book, Preparing to Publish, was published open access by Iowa State University Digital Press this year. Whether you're new to academic publishing or have been at this work for the better part of a career, the question why is certainly one you've entertained, probably often. Why do academics write articles in just this way? Why don't academics write their research into a text type that isn't an article? There'll be a better way, won't there? This article format seems so conventional, so clunky, so unfit to purpose, especially when you just want to come out and say it. We found this. It's new. No one knows about it yet. Pay attention. Why is that not possible? Well, dear imaginary person asking questions that I've put into your mouth, to be sure it is possible just to come out and say what you think in a research article. We academics would be poorly served if that wasn't possible. I mean, our trade is thinking. And if one primary outlet for academic research actually hindered us in doing the labor of thinking, well, then it would be a very bad outlet indeed. Nonetheless, very many students, still a large number of early career researchers and definitely more career academics than anyone would care to admit, cannot really recognize the purposiveness of the research article. And that is truly a terrible thing, because it means that all these bright and hard-working people are unable to use the research article to their own ends, are unable to see the opportunities for communication and persuasion in this paradigmatic form of the research project. Too many of us in academia, and also in industry, just do not get how to put our research purposes into this research document. Because no, the research article is not as intuitive as, say, a mattress or an iPhone, but still it is a very manageable device for the conveyance of information and the transference of ideas, when someone's shown you how. And that is precisely what Sarah Huffman, Elena Kotas, and Kimberly Becker do in their e-book, Preparing to Publish. This book is a teacher without the teacher. That's how clear and direct the authors have made the descriptions, explanations, and illustrations of the research article. The authors make explicit the goal of almost every sentence of the research article, so that academic writers can know where to come out saying whatever they can want to say about their research and the techniques for saying things are made explicit, so that academic writers can know, too, how to be saying whatever they can have to say about their research. This book teaches, but it can also be taught, because preparing to publish is a valuable pedagogical resource for anyone teaching EAP to graduate students or postdocs of any discipline at all. Preparing to publish does just what it says on the label and many a struggling academic writer will have today's guests to thank when the next paper comes out and says it just the way that the writer had intended. So let's begin today's episode. Sarah Huffman, Elena Kotas, Kimberly Becker, and Preparing to Publish. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hello, Thanks Daniel. for having us. 
Hi, thank you. Your book, as I make clear in the introduction, and as is clear in any book because it's on the cover, is titled Preparing to Publish. And when I consider your target audience, primarily graduates who are submitting their first articles, maybe even their very first article for publication, then I see how you have stepped in to offer help in a very crucial transition period for, for every academic, right? That move from the school to the world of research. And I often tell my own graduates who I help uh, writing here in Germany that, um, and these people come from natural sciences, also computer science, that when you're making that move, you're moving from the world of teaching and explaining to searching and claiming. I wonder if that th those those labels can make any sense to you, if, if, if you see your book helping in that sort of a transition. Well... I guess I, I can say a few words here. Um, I really like the way you put it in terms of claiming. Um, the way the book is written is really uh, helping students understand that the research article discourse is very much about making claims and not only making claims, but making sure that those claims are substantiated, substantiated with evidence from previous research as well as with evidence from the research that's reported. And is there anything, the, uh, Sarah or Kimberly, you, you would like to add to this idea of moving from the classroom into the world of actual research and understanding how to do that? No, I, I think that, um, you know, Elena's pretty much covered, covered it. Um, you know, this is the idea is the book is, you know, for graduate students or novice research writers. It do doesn't necessarily need to be only for graduate students. We have a lot of postdocs that we serve as well at Iowa State. And I think that postdoc community or even um, you know, new researcher, new uh, academic professor, any kind of a, of a role where someone would need to be you know, disseminating their research to this, um, this academic audience, I think that would you know, be the, the ultimate goal of, of the book. I think anybody in that realm could get a lot from it. I think one of the first things that caught my attention was after two or three pages of how to use the book instructions, basically, for either a student, um, someone who is the target audience, or also a um, an instructor who may be wanting, uh, want to uh, be teaching this material, uh, the first content that we get is the word argument. And this really jumped out at me because it made clear this idea that we're for very many, I would say, uh, graduate students or early career researchers, that this isn't necessarily front in their minds. Uh, I'm, I'm quoting um, from from the book here about arguments about the fact that the entire article, each individual sentence is laden with argument. And it is for this reason, I carry on quoting, that it is important that the research writers are intentional about what argument they want to make. These are some of the very basic issues that, I, that in my experience, and perhaps you can also um, supplement that with your own experience there, uh, that these, these sorts of writers definitely are struggling with, that they don't see happening in the research that they're reading. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's true that at Elena picked up on your use of the word claims, and I think that is a really important um, way to contextualize the the way we present the information in the book. Um, because in my experience, graduate students especially, but but certainly any novice researcher, their their real struggle is figuring out how to take a stance and position themselves as a disciplinary insider. You know, they're They've, they've been um, trying to establish themselves. And so crossing that bridge into the world of the expert and conveying that in their writing is really the, the big hurdle that they have to kind of jump over. And I will follow up to say here that, again, going back to the book, the way we have the material presented is to help these novice writers um, understand how to accomplish certain goals of the discourse. So um, they need to understand that their audience 
has certain expectations because the research article is a genre that, like you said at the beginning in your introduction, is highly conventionalized. So number one, they need to understand that there are certain expectations of, you know, on the use of those conventions. And then um, another thing is for them to understand that there, you should be doing things with language in order to be able to build that argument and um, articulate your claims clearly and effectively. So um, thinking about, okay, with like with every single sentence, what am I doing? Uh, well, what is the purpose of me saying this or that? Um, and if I'm saying this or that, does it make sense to me only? Or am I using language that's appropriately conveying my argumentative message that I'm putting in a paragraph or even at the level of a sentence. So that's why the book uh, presents these communicative goals, which we linguists call moves, as well as the rhetorical strategies that are used to accomplish those goals that we call steps. And we stick to this terminology because throughout our experience of teaching um, the research article genre and using this um, I may call it linguistic jargon. It it still makes a lot of sense when we explain it to students. So, absolutely, these are these are patterns. Whether they have, you know, intentionally tried to notice these patterns that are occurring in published writing in their field, these are patterns that they very easily pick up on. So, in uh, research writing instruction that we do, um, it's. It's clear that you know they they have been typically reading you know when they're looking a little bit deeper into published writing in their respective disciplines, um, you know they're commonly just looking for content. What are the ideas? What did this person do in their methods, or what did they find? But in this type of a book, the idea was that you know we're we're helping them uh, really break down what their research story is and determining how they're going to tell that story through this lens of a scientific argument, building up their scientific argument. Um, it, that's pretty much one of the reasons why we started the book off, even before how to use this book. Chapter one provides this base of what we see as a scientific argument and how we can start formulating that through um, an empirical research article. All three of you bring up really interesting points, which it is nice to put labels next to. And that's exactly, uh, Elena, as you say, the book does. It gives us, you know, communicative goals. It gives us rhetorical strategies and so on so that we understand what's going on. What you, Sarah, were just saying, I think, is really the struggle that very many you know, of uh, graduate uh, student writers who are becoming graduate research writers. They're in, as I was calling it, this transition period from, you know, a school environment to a research environment. I mean, they're focused very much on uh, what you, Sarah, were just talking about, the, the subject matter. What? What is it that they're talking about? And that's, mm -hmm. you know, understandable. I mean, very much of it is new and complex to them. But, but the book adds, and what you've just said, all three of you adds, on these two other layers, which I think, and and I would like to get to some of the visuals in the book because that, they really, I think, would will help uh, students understand what's going on in these different layers. But the communicative goals, in other words, I've got an audience, a set of people. There's something interpersonal going on here, and that, of, in my experience, is clearly not the first thought that comes to any, um, you know, academic's mind or, or, or particularly a graduate student's mind, right? They're still focusing on that what, the subject matter. And then on top of that, um, just, just as Kimberly, you were saying, this, this, this bridge that you, that you create, you know, this, this rhetorical strategy, how do I put that into the text? That you're always thinking about what is that next thing that I'm going to say and why? How is it going to help me achieve my goal? Um, all of these different levels, I think, make uh, through the book it very clear as to what it is that needs to go on if you want to be successful at this. One of the examples that you give, which works with the idea of a bridge that I might might give our listeners also a concrete example to work with, is from the title into the paper, probably into the introduction section, you need to bridge that with the abstract you tell us. 
And perhaps the abstract is a nice place to begin to talk about some of the um, advice that's given in the book. Um, would anyone care to expand on that idea of bridging through abstracts or other important areas in the abstract where these communicative goals and these strategies show up? Well, you are perfectly right in that there is that um, connection between what the abstract presents and what the entire paper presents. And so the abstract is obviously a snapshot of the content of the, of the scientific contribution of the research that's reported, but it is also a very um, succinct way of presenting the scientific argument. Um, typically when we teach, um, we teach the, we teach abstract writing at the very end after we teach how to write introduction methods, results, discussion, and conclusions. Um, so, you know, in the introduction, you would start, um, your argument by highlighting a certain problem and proposing a solution. And then, um, in the method section, you would be very descriptive about the methodology. So the abstract needs to reflect both the research goals and how those goals were um, accomplished methodologically or approached methodologically. And then what's the um, the purpose of the results section, the section that's really contributing to science, bringing new empirical evidence into the research field. Um, and so the section itself spends a lot of time on that, while the abstract just um, highlights the, the take-home messages um, in this um, very short research story presented in the abstract. And then the abstract would typically wrap up with what is the value of research and the real contribution, which is something that um, pertains to the goals of the discussion conclusion section. So um, there is a reason why we teach the abstract last, because it um, the, we believe that students would need to know the complexity and the different uh, goals and, or moves and steps, goals and strategies of the section and then they would make a decision for what are more appropriate to be used in the abstract. Um, we have them look at different types of abstracts, but um, part of, of the teaching process is directing them to texts in their own discipline. And like Sarah mentioned, identifying patterns there. And we want them to determine the type of abstract that is more common in their field, more common in the type of journal that they're submitting to, and then make decisions about how to shape and structure the short version of their research story in the introduction um, by using the, the, the rhetorical strategies um, that are more appropriate um, to be used in the introduction. So that's how, how I would answer this question. And, and also, I would just add that from a practicality standpoint, we try to help students understand that that abstract is, you know, that that can really be the make it or break it for the entire research article. That could be the, the point of decision, whether a, a researcher, a reader is going to download or potentially buy um, the research article, or that's the, maybe even an evaluative um measure for if you're submitting a conference abstract, for example, um, it might be on your abstract, you know, that you are evaluated as to whether you'll get into the conference or be accepted into this conference. So um, it's one of the reasons we talk about the form features and obviously length and word choice and grammar and, um, and even the nitty gritty of these abstracts, because they, and, you know, practicality wise, they're integral to a academics an academic success yeah, I have to jump in right there about what you're talking about, Sarah, because the abstract, I mean, uh, Elena, you're very right. I mean, the abstract is not the place to start teaching how to write a research article because it is so complex, but that's just what's so interesting about it. It's, um, And I'd, I'd be very happy to hear all your views on this. It's, it's, it's almost gotten to the point, like, what is the abstract and what is it meant to do? There is so much being asked of it. I, I think you even make a joke uh, along these lines in the, in the book somewhere as to that's a lot to ask of, you know, 200 words. Uh, you give various definitions. Um, 
a high stakes document or make it or break it as Sarah is talking about right now. Um, I've heard it uh, described uh, as a sort of advertisement. Uh, Stephen Hurd, who's written uh, a guide for science writers um, in the book, you talk about it being an abbreviated representation of the uh, paper itself, informative, but indicative is also an interesting way of looking at it in the, in, in the idea basically that it points to a lot, but includes very little of the content. Um, I guess the, 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 the trouble I'm trying to stir up right now is what do we say about the abstract? Yeah, this is a hard one um, because as you've pointed out, there's a lot of kind of contrasting ways to describe an abstract. Um, I was just going back and sort of looking at some of the ways we described it in the book. And, um, you know, the descriptors include accurate, concise, non-evaluative, coherent, readable, you know, that's a, that, that's a lot to ask. Um, and then there are all these different types of abstracts and there are disciplinary differences. So I think the challenge in that section of the book was trying to address the really vast amount of um, differences that, that are that occur within an abstract, just, you know, whether it's in a journal article or for a conference proceeding or, yeah, there's just a lot of differences that go on. And then besides that, it's just an inherently kind of non-intuitive writing style. Cause like Elena said, you, you know, you sort of do it at the end um, of of the, of the research and the writing, because you need to, you need to have everything wrapped up before you can summarize it. I mean, you, you can't start summarizing without some original thing to summarize. So yeah, abstracts are, are really, really difficult. And part of the difficulty for novice research writers is, and not only, but is deciding what is really going to make make it or break it and here it comes to the content that they select okay um typically what they would write in their introduction and literature review when highlighting a gap or a problem it's not just one thing right there there is um multiple factors that play into the motivation to conduct research and justify and rationalize the need to do the research um so what you know is there one big gap uh, or how, how do you actually present this in the abstract in a very concise way, but still make it, how do you make it very convincing to um, convince your readers that, that, it's, that the paper is worth reading their time or examining or evaluating, depending on where the abstract is going. Um, and then when it comes to... Um, talking about the methodologies, that's very complex. Again, so what do you just say that it's a mixed method study or do you feature some innovative aspect of your methodology only? Or um, And then with the results, um, how, how do you put so much into just a few words? Uh, I don't know, a, a sentence or two, depending on what length is accepted by the targeted venue. Um, so what's really the take-home message that you want the readers to, to take out of it? Um, and, and it's also difficult for students at times to see that what's the actual value of their study. So, you know, they, they tend to be focused on, I did this, this is, I'm excited about what I found, but I'm not quite sure how that fits in the big world of science in my field. I'm so little, I'm humble. How do I make claims about the value of this work, right? So that's that's another struggle that they may have internally before they actually put this into words. Um, and in terms of the importance of the abstract, once you get a hold of how to produce those abstracts, how to not only write them in an efficient, you know, rhetorically effective way, but also content selective type of way, um, it, it's helpful to, to have, um, you know, different opportunities for practicing, um, perhaps writing the same abstract for different purposes. So one would be submission to um, a, a conference. One would be the abstract to a paper you're submitting for publication. Another potentially could be an exercise to write the same abstract for a grant proposal. And so that should help students 
um, consider the audiences and the purpose of the abstract from different kinds of angles and different audiences and how their argument should be shaped in view of who they're structuring it for. You use two phrases there, Elena, that I, I find I think will be very helpful to to uh, novice uh, research writers. You talk about this content that is selected, and then you talk about the actual value of the research. And that idea of selecting and value, I think, is really key here. Uh, later in the book, when you're talking about abstracts, you talk of, you give a number of WH questions that can guide you. And the first two are really indicative of just what you're saying, I believe. Uh, this who was the audience and why was the research undertaken? What was your motivation and who's going to care? In other words, that you went through the trouble. I suppose the idea I'm floating out there for you to think, to, to respond to is, it seems like one of the things that helps rhetorically writing is when graduate students also start to pay attention not only to the subject matter, but who's doing what with that subject matter. In other words, multitasking in their reading of the research and understanding, so what are the motivations behind studies X, Y, Z, and so on and so forth, and how can I fit my motivation into that pattern? Is this a question for me? <laughs> it, it, it's just uh, just out there for anyone to okay. take <laughs> or no one <laughs> yeah I, I don't want to be dominated in the discussion so maybe Sarah or Kimberly have to say something and if anything I can follow up sure I, I did just want to say that um, you know we I always in my research writing classes kind of akin this to you know we want to make sure that the students are focusing on the context in which they are communicating. So they are communicators and they have readers and audience members. Um, you know, this looks different in research writing realms versus science communication realms. And being aware that there is that, you know, they are not writing in a vacuum. They are writing to someone and they need to have that purpose and that the audience's expectations as well as um, you know, the audience's current understanding of the topic area in mind, that's, that's of critical importance. But also knowing that they are standing on the, um, you know, the foundation of others who have gone be before them in this discipline, doing similar types of work. Of course, they're contributing uh, new scientific knowledge, um, and they need to make sure that they're highlighting that and explicating the value of that. However, um, they are not, you know, reinventing the wheel. Um, they need to make sure that the the foundation that they lay out in the introduction and then again, weave back in through different parts of, of the research article um, shows that they recognize that um, that communication, that conversation that's happening with other members of their discipline and that they're, they're building from that discipline. And this is how they are contributing to that um, through, through their findings, through their unique research. And One of the, oh, please. Yeah, please. Yeah, Elena. Just, I just wanted to take this a little bit outside of the abstract because your questions are really, I mean, the, the, the question, the last question that you asked um, is true for, for the abstract, but it is true for every single component of the research article. Who is your audience? So when you are shaping your argument for the need to conduct research, then who are you talking to? Okay, who would value and really understand that need and and appreciate your attempt to address a, a particular gap, right? So you you need to be aware who you're writing to when you start shaping your argument, uh, when you present your methods, for example. Again, who's your audience? How much do they know about the methodologies that you've employed? Because this will dictate, uh, perhaps if you come up with something innovative, you need to make a stronger type of claim um, indicating that this is a credible, reliable type of a methodological approach, even if it's innovative, right? Um, and then when you describe it, again, it depends on how much you expect the audience to know. That would dictate the level of detail that you would put into one or another component when describing it. 
Um, again, when you talk about, let's say, um, discussing the results, think about your audience, what would appeal to, to that particular audience? Why, you know, even in interpreting the results and trying to explain, um, it's, it's, again, who will be reading it? What are they looking for? Um, and why they really um, would understand and agree with the motivation and justification for the study once they see the results and how you describe them, um, how you explain them, and what implications you talk about that may be pertinent to your audience. To be able to answer these questions, who and and why, in other words, who's going to be your audience and how are they going to understand you and why, why are they going to care about something like this? Why would you do a study of this sort? So again, we're back to audience. Who's going to understand that a study like this needs to be done? All these questions rely on exactly what the book encourages readers to do. Go out there and see how that's being done. Notice that other level or levels, that that fine film that's over the top of every research article where you might, as a graduate student, only be seeing content matter is actually colored rhetorically. And once you start to notice that film or that layer, you can never really look away anymore from it. Um, The book makes it clear that that's something that you need to be going out to into your own field and and doing on your own. And it gives fine advice and very hands-on advice on how to do that, showing really on a sentence-by-sentence level, just Elena, as you've been describing, right? And here's an example from a method section. This is why it would probably have been put together this way. Here's an example from a results section and so on and so forth. I mean, identifying these patterns. My question would be here, okay, how much will either a graduate student or an early career researcher or any researcher be serving their own purposes to be going out and doing that on their own, which is essentially what they'd be doing anyway, right? Because they'd be reading the research anyway, and they can just notice more. And how much of it could also be served well by working together with a corpus? I know this is something that all of you are familiar with. I know that, for instance, the the Center for um, Communication Excellence, which has been on our show, (laughs) uses uh, corpus uh, methods. I suppose I'm interested in the affordances of the two approaches for the researchers themselves. Well, I I know that both Elena and Kimberly will have uh, a lot to say about this because we are all very much... um, advocates of the corpus approach um, to instruction and the learning of, of academic genres um, as a whole. But, um, but yeah, I, I will say that, you know, through this, through this class, you know, it's a, I often talk to my students about, and I say this at the very beginning of the course, that you will never look at your writing in your field the same way again. Um, The goal is for them to go forward as analyzers of writing, as analyzers of communication in general, and be a lot more intentional about determining the function of what that writer, what that author is doing, and how they are effectively or maybe ineffectively achieving those goals. And so... It's it's a little bit of a joke in my classes that you know you've you've ruined you've ruined my ability to go in and just mine uh, you know some research articles for the information that I was seeking. I just usually went in and looked at the methods section or just was looking for the results, but now I can't help but see these goals and strategies or these moves and steps um, in action and what these authors are doing um, because it's. The class and through this this book, the idea is to turn readers, novice uh, research writers, uh, in this case, into you know more critical viewers of and analyzers of text in their disciplines. I'll jump in and and just say a little bit about um, my experience is that um, students tend to think that academic writing is this objective kind of faceless 
um, entity, but in fact, it's very much um, negotiating lots of different social relationships and um, it's pulling together, you know, this whole rhetorical situation of the author and the audience and the purpose. And um, I think students get so bogged down in the complexity of the content because, I mean, we're talking about, you know, very, very high level content um, that they they forget there is um, that the reader has needs um, and that the reader doesn't necessarily see their motivation. Um, you know, maybe, you know, you're fascinated. Of course, you're fascinated by this topic. You went to graduate school in this in this subject, but that doesn't mean that, you know, your motivations are clear to your reader. And so, you know, creating this understanding how, you know, the writing needs to acknowledge and construct and negotiate all of these relationships between writer and reader to explicitly indicate evaluations of the material and acknowledge alternative views and, you know, bring in all these different voices um, and ultimately, you know, arguing for the research questions. Um that, I mean, when, when I was a graduate student and someone said to me, you know, your literature review is just an argument for your research questions, that, that blew me away. That really, because I thought, I saw it as just a sort of objective dumping ground for this is what we did. Here, here's the science, here's the methodology. And in fact, it's, it's not at all that way. Elena, before you come in, because I, I mean, this question is going to be one I'm sure that you eat up. I really just have to <laughs> emphasize that, Kimberly, what you've been saying, I think that's just fantastic. This idea that you have to see that readers have needs. I mean, just the way that you put that, I think really will shake up some people's view of what they're doing, that your topic or your motivations as a researcher are not givens, you know? Um, yeah, really, really well put. Yes. Thank you, Kimberly. Um, we tend to forget how we felt when we were students learning the genre. <laughs> and we tend to focus on how do we, you know, do a good job teaching. So, and, and I would want to say a few more words um, to follow up perhaps on what Sarah said um, about how reading, you know, reading of published research articles for students is not the same anymore because what they start doing is not only reading to learn, but reading to analyze how that written material has been produced in, in such a clear, effective way. So basically what we're trying to do with the book is to give students a toolkit, right? Here's, you can think of it as a toolkit, like here, here are the goals and here are the rhetorical strategies that you can use um, to both analyze and see how that's happening in effective discourse that's been published and how you can shape your own. Um, and in the book, we'll also provide examples, like you mentioned, Daniel, from, uh, and these examples come from a large multidisciplinary corpus that we built, uh, I can say, maybe about 10 years ago, and we've added more disciplines to it. Um, so um, in our prior research, we um, developed this, what, what is now the core of the book, this framework of, of these moves and steps of these rhetorical goals and strategies that apply across disciplines. And that's probably one of the highest value of the book, because then, um, you know, we're not being prescriptive saying that you should do everything, but we're saying this is your toolkit um, you can look at your corpus, um, collect your own short, uh, compil you know, compile a short collection of articles um, and see what applies, see what your discipline does. Um, so with that, we give students a certain level of autonomy to shape their learning and to decide um, what applies to them. Um, and when exploring their own corpus or here at Iowa State, we have the research writing tutor where we have, um, you mentioned, Daniel, the colors, we have a color annotated, color coded um, corpus that shows um, the, the, the users, the students, um, what, like at the level of sentence, right? Every single sentence, what is it doing rhetorically and in terms of what communicative goal it's trying to accomplish. So um, I just wanted to, to mention that um, as a follow-up so you can 
go on with your questions now <laughs> if you have any others <laughs> um yeah sure no uh, i suppose i'd, I'd like to uh, extend the question i had asked earlier about okay so the early career researchers the novice writers of research they extend, can very valuably extend their own study of the rhetoric of their field by using a corpus. I'd like to extend that to uh, us EAP um, instructors or people <laughs> ourselves and ask, okay, well, with the help of a corpus or with one's own reading of the actual you know, literature and say biology or uh, machine learning or chemistry or whatever the field might be. Um, is it possible for us to also then become really disciplinary inside type instructors helping people who are perhaps even beyond the graduate level? So the postdoc level or even faculty. My question to bring it to a point is, where are the limits for the EAP specialist um, who has command of a corpus and who is also trained in the area of communicative goals and rhetorical strategies? Because I guess the way I see it is that those are the three things that go up to go into making a great research article, the subject knowledge, the communicative goals, and the research strategies. And if you think, well, gee, you know, and an EAP specialist has two of those and can learn a little bit about the first. And wouldn't they be a great, you know, co-pilot, let's say, for um, postdocs or even staff who are uh, looking to increase their publishing or improve the quality of their publishing? Well, that's a great question. And I think Kimberly should address this one because she's worked extensively with postdocs. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, when I, <laughs> when I am at first trying to convince someone that it's worthwhile to work with an EAP specialist, such as a consultant, um, a writing consultant, um, you know, I usually say you're the disciplinary expert and, um, I'm the linguist. And so, you know, the line gets drawn um, as you said in your in your question, where does the line get drawn at um, at the at the level of content? You know, I I cannot speak to that disciplinary content. I don't have knowledge in your field, but I can I can help you find linguistic resources that are the tools you need to build those arguments and make those you know accomplish those communicative goals. So I always pitch it as this you know kind of this toolkit metaphor, this metaphor of like a toolkit and just expanding the resources you have um, in hand to further your writing because they know the science, of course, they, they're experts in their field. Um, but where they often struggle is, you know, how to say what they want to say. They know exactly what they want to say. They don't know how to say it. Um, and of course, it's not as easy as just saying, how do you say it? As I talked about before, there's this issue of readers' needs and rhetorical situation. But um, once I can show them, and I think this this book is a wonderful tool um, because you know it's it's hard to have a, a linguist on hand, an EAP expert on hand at any time. It's not convenient, but this book is very convenient, um, and I think that's you know why it's it's such a great resource um, being open access that anytime you're writing, you can open it up and, and you can look at the section, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to write implications and you can find that in the book and you can see what, you know, exact um, resources other writers have used, exact phrasing um, that, that you can repurpose and adapt to fit your own goals. And so that's kind of how I see my role. Um, and speaking about um, EAP specialists and, you know, specialists or faculty in the disciplines or postdocs in the disciplines, um, maybe I can uh, share a little, um, a little story that I, um, <laughs> I recently experienced. So when th this book, um, yes, we want to have it being used in our EAP classes, right? Uh, but it's it's certainly open access, and we um, are more than happy when faculty in the disciplines reach out. And this is the story that I'm 
about to share. Um, a faculty, one faculty member, he's he's very advanced. Um, he, he's a professor already in industrial manufacturing systems engineering. And when he saw the book, he emailed saying, you know what? You know how, how, how long I've been waiting for something like this? It puts what I don't know how to say into words. And I know how to talk to my students because of this book. And so that that is a, you know, is a very nice story to share. I think it's kind of a highlight because... Um, if we know in EAP and it, it's very difficult to have this, this, we don't live in the idea world where we would have this um, solid and systematic partnership between EAP specialists and, and disciplinary specialists. So if we as EAP specialists can supply something to the disciplinary specialist, uh, some, uh, we can supply materials like some that we've included in this book, we're doing them a great favor. Um, and there was another thought that I had. I don't know if I lost it. <laughs> um, uh, well, maybe it will occur to you, but I would, I, no. I would like to follow up with what you're saying right there. If I had known that story, I would have opened the entire interview with it because that uh, encapsulates for me also the book. I mean, it's very clear that uh, you know anyone could just walk into this book and really start to get things out of it. It's been my experience, and that's what the book seems to illustrate for me as well, that if you are speaking to people who are advanced in their careers from graduate level up, it's almost as if when you talk about the rhetoric, you're activating things in their minds that are just slumbering. Just as you've said with this staff member who, uh, this professor who, who says, oh, these are the, you know, I wanted to be able to say these things. I, I want to say things. I just didn't know how. And, and now I know how. So for instance, just the idea that you make it clear to them that when they're writing a research article, they're, they're reaching out and showing, hey, I've got something here that I think you're going to care about. And I think you can use it in your own research, right? When, when you start saying that to postdocs and so on, it, it sort of immediately makes sense, even if they hadn't thought about it in that terms. But that's the beauty of the book. It gives you those terms. That's, that's, that's what most of these people are missing. Right. It's, it's equipping them with the vocabulary that maybe, you know, maybe they intuitively have been, um, they, they've gained this understanding maybe on their own or through years of experience, but they can't necessarily translate that to the students. And they want their students so badly to be able to uh, effectively write and convey their research. But you, you had a question about limits and where you see the limits for, um, you know, for a, a, a book like this or a uh, maybe postdocs or even faculty using this book. Um, I really... I really feel like we're all in the position where we could all be better writers. We could all keep refining our understanding of what's going on in the genre and our response to that. Plus, you know, as, as we all know, the, the genre is emerging. Um, we have such things as graphical abstracts that are, that are coming out in some disciplines that are becoming very popular. And, and so we as instructors um, of EAP, need to respond to those emerging changes um, within particular disciplines, but also help not only students, but we, we have um, the ability, I think, to help, to help establish scholars as well, better understand what kind of restraints are no longer, you know, we're, we're not in a paper-based system anymore. And so uh, there are now videos or the capability of inserting videos and the capability of inserting multimedia um, into, you know, into our into our papers, into our publications, and our dissemination of research. So, um, so as even though we think that we may have it figured out, sometimes as as more established um, disciplinary scholars, um, there's always a lot of room for change, and there's always a lot of uh, new innovations on the horizon that we have to re be responding to. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm glad you say that, Sarah, and I'm also glad you re-pick up, pick up that question again that I was asking there about the limits. Um, because, I mean, without praising uh, EAP too much, <laughs> I mean, coming from, you know, linguistics and literature background, we, we, we study these things. This is the content of what we do. I mean, just what you're saying there, the uh, Sarah, about the fact that you know the the abstract is evolving. It's changing and and suiting different purposes and different media. I mean, 
for a linguist, that's more or less like, duh. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we study the history of language. We see how forms and genres adapt and change. We expect that. So I suppose this 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 point I'm 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 driving at with 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 you as 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 you know experts in this field also is why is it that very often EAP specialists themselves and it certainly just as you were saying Elena you know institutes see a limit on what they can contribute to I mean I guess I'm pleading for the fact that an EAP or as linguists our specialty is communication. So there shouldn't be a divide into how far we can enter into any field or discipline because we're dealing with the communication side of it. I entirely agree. And I will say that disciplinary specialists, you know, professors, faculty in the different disciplines, um, at least in our experience, always welcome opportunities to work with us and, and learn from us. So the example I gave it's, it's, it's just one example, uh, but I will go back to the research we've done um, to develop this framework of moves and steps that I said, like I said before, is cross-disciplinary. Um, we did not just do it, us linguists, okay? Um, when developing this framework, we collaborated with disciplinary faculty, with faculty in those 30 disciplines that we were investigating. We collected the corpus with them. We developed these move and step notions and and descriptors and definitions and examples. And we worked with them back and forth to make sure that, number one, they understand what we mean, right? And and so that we we put it into words that are not, don't make sense only to linguists, Um, but to also make sure that it's something that really happens in their discipline and get to their um, implicit knowledge in a more explicit way. So we refine the frameworks with input and feedback from those um, consultants in the disciplines, and I mean faculty consultants in the disciplines. And so that's why when somebody, you know, some faculty that didn't work with us before, but is looking at the book now and looking at these terms and the descriptions we have, they make sense. um, And they're happy to see that being explicitly articulated because they don't know how to say it, put it into words for their students. Um, It resonates with them. It's not something that we invented. We worked collaboratively with scholars in different disciplines to make sure that we do represent the expectations of the audiences in their discipline. So that's my Two cents to add to your question. <laughs> yeah, your two cents, which which just backs up the idea. I mean, this is the work of the linguist, right? I mean, also getting that uh, disciplinary insider knowledge um, is is just you know that's like our research, and uh, I suppose that was just the. You know, for listeners and anyone else who cares to listen um, uh, to, to the podcast, that you know, this this is a statement that's worth making clear to not you know not everyone has bought in. Very many universities do have faculties that are open, just as you're describing, Elena. There's just as many though that don't see it that way, and that's I guess that's just something I wanted to also get my two cents in on. I, I do want to two cents, ten cents, fifty cents uh, spend on uh, some of your um, graphics in the book, which I found extremely helpful. Um, and I think these are also some of the huge benefits for, um, you know, early career researchers who are looking for an idea as to, yeah, so what am I doing where? I, I mean, for instance, you, 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 you make graphic with uh, concentr- uh, um, concentric circles, the, the intro, the discussion in a beautiful way. Um, one of the ones I found really interesting was, uh, and, and I would be happy to hear uh, your your comments on, is in the results. Um, if I can, I'll, I'll test my ability to uh, describe pictures. We're here in a <laughs> audio uh, media. So um, quite simply, the results are shown as uh, two pyramids with the bases meeting in the middle. So we've got a point at the top and a point at the bottom. And then there are four positions, four moments or goals, uh, four moves, as we would call them, that occur going down from the top to the points to the bases meeting, the fat bits, and then down to the very point again, leaving the results. And those are approaching the niche, occupying the niche, constructing the niche, and expanding the niche. I had seen similar sorts of approaches to, say, the intro or the discussion, but I've never seen a graphic of this sort describing the results. And I would be very happy to hear um, 
your let's say own viewpoints on on this visual for for what's happening in the results i'll try to jump in here um i think when when we got to this section of the writing we had used a lot of other <laughs> different graphics and so um we were working with a graduate student who I believe was a specialist in graphic design. And so um, we had a lot of help with that, but um, just trying to get some other visual way to convey the information. And I think just starting with this idea of specificity versus generality is um, kind of a, a metaphor that runs throughout the the book and in all the graphics. And so that's, that was the idea that I had when, when we were brainstorming these, these graphics. Um, and also the, you know, this idea of the niche has been introduced, you know, way back um, at the beginning and carries through. And so by the time they get to this point there, they should be very familiar with this idea of what is the niche and how do you, you know, how do you approach it and, and um, kind of, it out what what needs to be said about it so that's kind of the the background of that just thinking I'm trying to think back to you know how did we come up with this and I don't remember any specific conversations but um, just trying to think of different shapes to get at like I said the specificity versus generality of any one section or the other and to add to that so Kimberly is absolutely right on point about specificity and generality um, but also, if you think about it, um, and again, this would require um, listeners to, to read through this section, but approaching the niche is something that does not need to, does not occur um, in an extensive amount of discourse in the results section. It's more of a reminder um, for, you know, for the results story to be told. Um, it's, it's more about how what is it, what's the evidence that occupies the niche and how can we explain and interpret it, right? So that's that's the bulk. And then with expanding the niche, um, in the results section, we don't really take the um, meaning of the results outside of the scope of the study, right? So towards the end of the results, as a transition to the discussion, we only begin to expand the niche. So there is little there. And, and that ex- expansion happens in the discussion conclusion section. Yeah, it's very, very uh, good graphic. Um, and it does capture very intuitively. I was, I, was, I was seeing exactly what you've just described there. And what's nice about it, it gives a flow because you have a sense that you're going along some sort of a course, right? You start small, move big, and then sm- head out small again. It has some, some motion to it. It's very nice graphic. The graphics overall, I, I want to uh, stress for listeners, are extremely helpful and just capturing what it is that you're about to stay to stay with um the the results two uh, issues that get brought up in the book um which are perhaps worth also just broaching here for our listeners and two issues that very much become questions i know in my own courses uh, helping graduate and postdocs um in their own writing relating to the uh, uh, results is is about balance. And that is the balance between the results text, the body text and captions, and then the balance generally, which is explored at length in the book, between the balance of the results and what it has to say about interpretation and the discussion and its main purpose of interpretation. I, I wonder if those would those two balances would be something that you could also um, offer your opinions or views on. I, I'm not sure if I understood the balance question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, that's, that's entirely possible. Sometimes I do that. <laughs> um, it, it, well, I'll just start off with the first question. We'll just move to the other one. The one is, is inside of the results section itself. Um, you have the uh, body text where you're uh, exploring the results in all its detail, and then comes a uh, set of parentheses, figure one, see figure one or whatever, right? Or as you see in figure one, any, any sort of reference. And then you go over to figure one, and then you get a caption, which depending on fields can be more or less expansive. Um, I've noticed in the biological sciences that they'll 
use that space to say quite a lot. I've noticed in the computer sciences, they, they keep it to a sentence, basically. Um, but this is a perennial question that I hear um, coming up amongst uh, novice writers is, okay, so w- w- why am I creating these two text, texts that the caption and the, the text and the results itself, which, which potentially very much could overlap? What, what are the purposes that I'm serving which, with each of them? I, I think that um, if I could just say a few words, I think one of the things that we want we want uh, readers to do as you know as well as these um, the students that we're using this text with, um, we'd like them to to see how that that visual supports um, the text, the actual text and the and the particular section, so within the results section. Um, but, also could be potentially seen as a standalone item. Um, and so it, it should be, and we encourage our students to see those visuals, the figures and the graphs and even the tables um, as you know elements unto themselves. As we all know, sometimes we open up a research article and we scroll through. Some of the things that catch our attention are those visuals. And so if someone does simply look at you know the the graphic, um, what are they able to glean? What kind of information are they able to glean from that graphic? And can it can it be standalone um, if if separated from the text? And so it's it really is discipline specific as to how much of a description you know is provided in the caption. Um, of course, we don't want with such a minimal word count and restrictions on uh, on these word limits. We don't want students to be redundant, but also we we need to have them understand how those visuals and the captions um, should be supporting the text and how they're explaining their results and what they mean. And sometimes, again, this is this is this is something that depends on the discipline as well. Um, sometimes the caption would give a summary um, of multiple details provided in the visual and in the actual narrative in the section in, in some paragraph that makes this alternative presentation of the results or relates students, uh, readers to the, um, to the visual. Um, what writers may want to do is just highlight something that's most essential. So in the text, it, it would be the highlight that's worth bringing up, reporting, and further discussing, while in the caption, it may be more of a story with some detailed explanation of the actual graphic. But again, like I said, it depends on the discipline. Yeah, that's something I very much noticed in in the biological sciences, that just what you've said there, you know, the text follows the story, the caption shows you all the details, you know, for, for interest and further evidence sake. Um, the, the other balance I was talking about, which uh, I'd be, uh, without any pun intended, ha- happy to hear you weigh in on, is um, between the results and the discussion itself. Because the results is doing some work that the discussion is meant to do. Um, I suppose that's great. more the question that people are putting to themselves than rather, am I saying too much about the results in the discussion? So in other words, the interpretation, the beginning of the interpretation, as you describe it, expanding the niche, um, h- how does that fit in with what you're going to then go on to do in the discussion? W- where do readers stop? How can they find whether or not they've ended up with a nice balance in their sections? Uh, thank you for reformulating the question about balance. Uh, it makes perfect sense. Um, so... This is really one of the challenges, a very substantial challenge that um, students and novice writers have. How do I make my results different from my discussion? What should I say in the discussion that I haven't already said in the results? So um, one thing that we try to convey in the book and also when we teach is to think of the results in the results section as these pieces that um, contribute to findings, to something that can be formulated more generally as a finding. And if they discuss, because we do have similar strategies in the results and in the discussion, and the way we explain it to students is that in the results, 
you try to explain the meaning of the of, of the specific results, specific pieces within your results, and interpret them within the scope of the study. So what do they mean within the scope of the study? Okay. Um, in the discussion section, then you focus on the more general findings and take that discussion, interpretation, explanation, hypothesizing outside of the scope of the study into the field and start comparing with literature and um, start maybe making some theoretical interpretations. So um, that's a simple way of trying to explain where this balance may come in, right? So in the results, you focus on, you discuss them within the scope of the study. How do they apply to, I don't know, the participants, the setting, why certain things you think may have happened this way, considering how the study was conducted, where and with whom. And then in the discussion, you step outside the study territory and you start looking into the general broad knowledge that your discipline has generated and how yours fits in there. Would it be safe to say then that um, as the authors of a study, when you're in the results, you're able to write those more or less on your own. But when you're in the discussion, you've got to include the rest of your scholarly community. That would be a fair judgment, although in the results, sometimes you may also bring some reference to evidence from the discipline as well. Right, right. yeah. There may be some comparison contrasts that need to occur um, as those you know, results are being directly reported as well in the results, if it's a clean results versus a, a mix of results and discussion. And some disciplines have very dry results sections. When we, in our research, when we created the so-called um, DNA images of the structure of the results section, we had a, a very nice visual way of um, understanding what actually happens in those results sections. So a lot of disciplines are um, were really just color-coded in one color, which is reporting specific results. There was no introduction or transition from the methods, um, and there was no discussion, absolutely. It was just one dry, very statistically focused kind of discussion. And it, so again, this is depending on the discipline. Um, I'll stop. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to all of you. That is uh, Sarah Huffman, Elena Kotos, and Kimberly Becker. And their book, Preparing to Publish, is out open access with Iowa State University Digital Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Sarah, Elena, and Kimberly. Goodbye. Good. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Thank you, Daniel. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>